Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. My name is Larissa Lai, and I direct the Tea House Project as part of a Canada Research Chair in Creative Writing, which I hold here at the University of Calgary. I'm Hong Kong Chinese by way of Kumaye, Biotuk, and Coast Salish territories. I currently live on Treaty 7 land, where Tea House also makes its home. Tea House specifically acknowledges the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Bigani, and Gaina First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, comprising the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Podcasts are produced and edited by graduate students from the English department here at the University of Calgary. You're just about to meet one of them. Hello and welcome to Tea House Talks, the Insurgent Architect's House for a Creative Writing Podcast Series. Today, we present an interview of Julian Otonia Okot-Betek, led by Marjorie Ruganda. My name is Mahmoud Ababne, and I am a research assistant to Tea House Project at the University of Calgary. Tea House is honored to be podcasting to you from Treaty 7 Territory. In this interview, Okot Betek talks about her writing practices during the pandemic. She also discusses her work 100 Days that highlights the role of memory in the writing process, particularly what it means to remember a genocide. As a poet from East Africa, Okot Betek mainly focuses on the ethics of writing about the Rwandan genocide and how to softly approach this subject. She also recalls her collaborations with other artists and the people who taught her how to think and how to write. Okot Betek concludes by highlighting the power of the word when we tell our own stories. Marjorie Uganda is a second-year master's student in the Department of English at the University of Calgary. She graduated with a Bachelor of Arts in Journalism and Media Studies and English Literatures from Rhodes University, South Africa. Marjorie's research interests are post-colonial literature, African popular imaginaries, and female subjectivities in African literature. Julian Otonia Okot-Betek is the author of 100 Days, University of Alberta 2016, and two chapbooks, Sublime Lost Words 2018 and Gauntlet 2016. Julian is 2020 Simon Fraser University Writer-in-Residence and 2021 Chadbolt Fellow at Simon Fraser University. She is currently an assistant professor at Queen's University. Julian lives on the lands of the Musqueam, the Squamish, and the Slail Watooth peoples in British Columbia. I hope you enjoy this episode. Julie Okot-Bitek. My name is Marjorie Ugunda for Tea House. Um, Julie, thank you so much for taking time off your day to speak with us, especially because it's Easter. So I'm glad you could join me for a chat today. Glad to be here. Just right off the bat, let me just say that not everyone calls me Julie. Only my good friends call me Julie. 
So it's okay that you call me Julie, but my proper name is Julianne Otonia Okorbitek. So just for those who, folks who might think, who the heck is Julie? <laughs> That's who I am, okay. Thank you so much for the correction. I thought maybe if you could start off by giving us an introduction to our listeners, talk a bit about yourself, um, your trajectory as a writer, scholar, human, <laughs> and particularly just an introduction for those listeners that are not familiar with your work. Where can I begin? I don't know. Uh, uh, I guess I can begin right, right here. I am here. And how have I got here? I'm a poet. I have a book, 100 Days, and I have two other chapbooks, Sublime Lost Words, which was published by Elephant Press, and uh, Gauntlet, published by Nomados Press. I finished my studies at UBC in 2019, graduated in 2020 with a PhD. I teach at Emily Carr College of Art and Design in Vancouver. That's me. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I guess another just icebreaker question would be like, what has been as a writer and a scholar, as a teacher, what has been your, I guess, writing experience during this pandemic? Because it's just very different. When the pandemic first started, uh, for, for most of us, it was last February, March, or for many people, it was last February, March, or others, it, I started a little bit earlier. I think many of us were in shock. We didn't know how to be. We didn't know what was coming and everything was seemed dangerous. So for me, that shut me down completely creatively. I could not do very much. And I was listening to people announcing what kind of bakery they were doing, sourdough bread and soda bread and some artists were painting and yeah it was at once demoralizing and, and encouraging that some people could be creative and some of us could not and then eventually I started to think that you know what maybe if this is an endurance process we're going to be locked down forever maybe I should start documenting it and it's just not an, an idea original to me other people are doing it too so I started to write poetry the same way I did for 100 days I started to write poetry every day and because I'm not terribly creative, I started also at 100. So I thought, let me count down and see how many days. Then I got to I got to 60 poems in and I thought, ah, this is boring. I'd much rather pay attention to see what's going on rather than be a documentarist and always have my antenna on. I, I'd much rather live the moment. So I stopped writing it. And now a year later, I've been thinking that maybe I should write against those poems because now it's been a year, right? And see how, how things are different. And I, I went back to them and I could see that there was, I, I'd taken note of things like uh, the, the price of gas. Remember when gas prices fell, right? Uh, I'd already forgotten about that. And then I thought, nah, this is boring. I would not want to read that. So I stopped. So that's my creative process so far, <laughs> at least with regards to poetry. But I think it's so amazing that you say that because about going back, because um, with 100 days, particularly, memory is such an important theme in your work. And I think that's a good, I hadn't thought about that, about if you just have maybe a small piece of writing or something that you wrote during the pandemic, going back and kind of seeing maybe how different your emotions were during the time or what excited you or what made you really panic. So I think that's really great. And Speaking about 100 days, and thank you for bringing that up as well, because I will be, I would like to talk about that work. I was wondering if you could, for those listeners who are not familiar with the work, if you could talk about a bit about, give an introduction to 100 days. 
Okay, so the 100 days that I've just referenced was a book I wrote in 2014. And I wrote it thinking about or asking myself, what does it mean to remember a genocide 20 years after it has happened? So you're absolutely right. Memory is an important part of, of my writing and thinking process. Just, just to take a couple of steps back, when I said this is boring, uh, I didn't mean boring, boring like it would lead you to sleep, but really it's, it's not a great word to say it is inappropriate for me one year after this pandemic to be writing against it. I think the work is not yet mature, so, or my memory work is not yet mature, so maybe next year it will be more interesting, right? Three years after all or two or however many that is. But for 100 days, it had been 20 years in 2014 since the genocide took place in, in Rwanda in 1994. And being someone of Ugandan extraction who was born in Kenya, I knew that my perspective would be one of someone who comes from a place that has been set on fire by violence. And it would not, it, it felt appropriate for me to have have something to say about it. And so I started to do that work of writing a poem every day for, for the duration of the, uh, the memory of the 100 days of, of this genocide. And so the work was called 100 Days. It's published by University of Alberta Press. Wow. And it's, I feel like reading it, I really did think a lot about your process and that's what I wanted to also ask you about. I guess the intentionality is right there, as you said, but what was that process like of writing a poem every single day? Because not just because you can write a poem every single day, but I think with this particular collection, it's very heavy. There's a lot of a lot about trauma, there's a lot about loss, about death. So I was wondering about what that process was like for you. I it was important then as it is now to think about memory as not just a reflection on the worst things that happened. It's almost as if it's necessary to write about trauma and death and pain when you're trying to think about the memory of a genocide. But I, I think it's also really important for me that we write about the everyday things that we will miss after we've come through. So I have a poem in there about a girl who's had her hair plaited. And when you have the memory of, your, of having your hair plaited, that's not a traumatic memory. It can be a, a pleasurable memory for some people, right? Never mind your hair being tugged at painfully or all that kind of thing. But it can be a, a really pleasant memory. But if it's associated now with the, the fact that whoever used to do your hair is not there anymore, it means even in the future or in the present, every time your hair is flattened, you remember that again. So it's also part of saying that our everyday was lost. Our moments of nothing spectacular becomes spectacularized against trauma, trauma, right? In addition, I was also thinking about Primo Levi, Jewish writer who wrote, If This Is a Man, Survival in Auschwitz. And in it, he talks about the gray zone. And, and he talks about, to, to summarize very briefly, which is a terrible thing to do, how it is that the true survivors of something like that never survived. The true witnesses, sorry, the true witnesses never survived. So those who could have told are not here to tell. So those of us who are telling, degrees removed from what happened. And even if they could tell, even if we could tell, what words are those that we would use to tell? So what is it that we are telling when we tell? And so that gave me both the, the caution to approach 
very, very softly, very gently, very respectfully, but also to not to try and claim that this is the voice of the witness, because I'm not from Rwanda and I wasn't there, right? But to imagine what are the voices that I was not listening to, what are the voices I was not reading when I was reading work around the Rwanda genocide. So that, that was my process, I think. And, you know, before I ask you to read, like, as you say, do you not being from Rwanda, if there are people out there listening and wondering as a Ugandan writer, sorry, as a Canadian Ugandan writer, why was it very important for you to speak about the Rwandan genocide? And I think one of the things that I love that you talked about in the author's not was about this like unifying of voices and the ways in which that I didn't know that you brought, at least to my attention, was that there was war and violence happening in at least three different countries at the same time that this was happening. So why was it important for you as a Canadian Ugandan writer to talk about this Rwandan genocide? Okay, sometimes I've given the example about, and this is not my idea, but the example of if your neighbor's house is burning, do you just sit there because your house is not burning? Or do you do something to try and take the fire out? This is not to say that writing a poem is equivalent to get rid of the fire, but it's to say that we have a responsibility to be aware of what's happening around us, not just in our community, but also beyond our borders. What's, what sparked me into action was seeing the poetry, not poetry, photography of a Kenyan-American artist called Wangeshi Mutu. Years before that, I had read a book by a man called Philip Gorovich. I think it's called something like By This Time Tomorrow, something like that. It's a, lo it's a long title. And he wrote as an American of Jewish extraction about the Rwanda genocide. So we from East Africa, we are questioning whether we should or should not be writing. And yet others will come from far, far, far away with further histories and feel that they can tell this story. I think it's a human story. I think it's an African story. I think it's an East African story. And more, I think it's our story in our, our community. At the time when the genocide in Rwanda was happening, uh, there was war in Darfur, which was declared a genocide. There was war in Bosnia, which was declared a genocide. And Northern Uganda, which is where my parents were both born, was in flames and it had been on fire since 1985. And I had never written about it because for me, it was too close. I was in it, not physically, but I was in it. And so 20 years later, which sounds like a blink in time, 20 years after the Rwanda genocide, it, it almost felt like a desperate need because I hadn't read anyone from East Africa writing about this. And they're probably there, but I live at the edge of the world in Vancouver. I hadn't read them. So what does it mean to claim to be a writer and not to take note of what is happening around you in your neighborhood, in your community? I might not be from Rwanda, but I have family from Rwanda. I have friends from Rwanda. And where I live for some of my life was right next door. So I thought I can do this too. And I should. And thank you for saying that because it makes me think about like when you were speaking about like what do we consider as you said our community because me growing up in Uganda if I would think about I would only think about where I was raised I probably wouldn't even think about northern Uganda because to me that that seems far from where I am so it's kind of like that idea of the stories that we tell ourselves that we can speak about like we only think we can speak about like what's outside our door just like the nearest, but we don't really think about that sense of, as you're saying, the East African community. 
I'll tell you what, though, in our family, and this is in my mother's side of the family, when my mother was a girl, so sometime during the 50s, some very tall strangers landed on the homestead of my great grandfather, and they had been walking a long way and they were looking for refuge. They were running away from the first Rwanda genocide of 1959, and they land, They stopped in Acholi, uh, and they found some refuge there. They stayed, they brought up their families, they lived there. So we have, or at least we used to have, a Rwandan community in Acholi. So our stories are not separate. So even if I wanted to talk about um, just what's happening in Acholi, we have neighbors and family from Rwanda, right? So it's our story, really. Yeah. And that's what I was thinking about as well. There are just very, there are very many random communities, if you think about in Uganda as well, in different places. Mm -hmm. And like, I think a lot of people don't even ask about those stories, about those journeys of how they got there and about settling there and about those experiences. I think there's a way that we kind of separate them to be very individualistic based on nationality. And I think the beautiful way that I really appreciate that you put it is to say, no, it's a very, it's a community. It's a memory for all our communities even though we remember it, I think differently um, and it affected us differently, but I really love that, that sense of community that you brought up in your work. And I have more questions about a hundred days, but I was wondering if you could read. Okay, I mean, you said that it's a heavy book, so <laughs> there's nothing like to pick here. I'll, I'll read two poems, day 24. And then there was just the two of us, everything in flames, the two of us, your arm around my shoulder, mine around your waist. We hobbled on, just the two of us. We hobbled on for a while, and then there was just me. Day 23. Some of us fell between words, and some of us fell onto sharp edges at the end of sentences. And if we are not impaled, we are still falling through stories that don't make sense. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. That was beautiful. Thank you. So you did speak about your collaboration with Wangechi Mutu, but very briefly, and I was wondering if you could go into just a little bit in depth about that, if you could speak about the importance of that collaboration. And I, I think there wasn't just the collaboration with Wangechi Mutu. I think you also, in the author's note, you also spoke about meeting um, a survivor of the genocide at a conference. So I was wondering if you could speak about those two collaborations. Okay. Um, you know, actually, that's that's a beautiful way to, to introduce Yolande Mukagasana as a collaborator, because I don't know that she would call herself that. I met Yolande in Colombia, and I was there for a poetry festival. I was a poet, she's a poet, there's a bunch of other poets, but not so many of us Africans. And uh, she told us that she had not written poetry until after the war. And she also, one night, told us a very painful story about how her, her brother had prophesied that this genocide would take place. And I had remembered her words in my head for a long time. So she was in my mind the whole time I was writing. And so 100 Days is dedicated to her. So that's the extent of collaboration, if you wish, right? She's mostly the person who sat with me unknowingly and kept me company. Um, Wangeshi Mutu was, was a Kenyan-American artist, and she lives in New York, I think. At least she lives in the West Coast, as far as I know. And when I saw that she had posted on Facebook a, a photograph of a woman holding a sign, written 100, I knew that she was going to be counting down. I mean, it, it just, it just, I just knew. So I wrote to her, right? and I said, hey, Wangeshi, she's 
that she was my friend or anything. I, I did, I'd never even met her. I just admired her work. But I wrote to her because in Facebook, you can DM anybody, right? And she responded. She said, oh, yes, let's do it. So she was going to post a photograph and I was going to post a, a poem, not necessarily in tandem, not necessarily one waiting for the other, but every day we would post. And she would upload my poem onto her photographs and I would upload her photographs onto my poems so that they were kind of linked through the 100 days, right? So people following me and people following her uh, could have conversations about these poems and and was in, and then of course I linked it to my I first wrote it on my website then I linked it to Facebook and she and then also on Twitter and she she did the same uh, on her own site she was doing her thing and that's how we did it for for the rest of the time so I guess for 99 days because technically on the first day I I had I'd just seen it and um, so I had to catch up with with it no that would be 100 days because then I don't know because I do I do have a poem which which starts with day one hundred, yeah. So that's how it worked out. But when we came to publishing the book, we decided that I just published the poems by themselves without the images. And I guess because I was also wondering in terms of the intentionality behind you deciding to use social media as your choice of medium the first time that you put these poems. I guess what was the response like? So what I did every day before I actually put it to the public I sent it to Wangeshi and then I also sent it to my three really close friends to their inboxes so that you know so went a little group so I sent it to so they were my first readers every day and then I would yeah. post it to to everybody so at least I knew that I had an intimate circle of readers those four people and so if other people did not read it it didn't matter and I understood it as an exercise sort of in stamina I was going to do this for 100 days and I knew it no matter what and so I was not looking for what other people would read or say or whether it was viral or not that was not my concern my concern was would I be able to get to day one and it was a long process right because you don't just have 100 days you also have other collections of work that you have. So this is kind of just like a general question and you you don't have to pick the most important, but I was wondering what is the most important work you produced in your own estimation and why did you produce it? <laughs> okay, I'll give you a fake answer and a true answer, okay? So my fake answer is that having written a PhD dissertation, that has to be the most important work I've ever done. <laughs> Because there were so many words and I had a committee of people and they had to decide whether it was good enough to pass. So without question, that is the most important work I've ever done. But the work that I enjoyed the most doing and that I love the most right now is a series of poems called There's Something About. So I have about six poems and all of them are titled There's Something About. I think I have a couple of them published, one in Room Magazine, but I, I like the series of poems. But in terms of collection-wise, Gauntlet, I really liked uh, writing Gauntlet. It's a collection of poems where I use the footnote in a very irreverent kind of way and playful kind of way. So I footnote just above every word in the book. <laughs> it just makes me happy. <laughs> and the footnotes are uh, read like a poem. <laughs> Yeah. What was that process like? Because I can only think about, if I think about footnotes, when I used to write essays, I used to do a lot of footnotes for history when I used to take history in undergrad. And that was a process that I just did not enjoy. <laughs> so what was that like? It was, it was, I was trying to take that not enjoying part out of writing footnotes. 
So then I made the poem, the little poem to be footnoted, a space of signification that becomes apparent in the footnote. So it almost doesn't matter if you read the poem or not. It's all the fun and all the creativity was in the footnotes because the footnotes themselves read like a poem. So I wanted to complicate the idea that this is a place for foundational knowledge and gravitas and yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just wanted to be a place of play. No, I really love that. I I think it's very uh, creative and also just kind of breaking down those things that we always think about that are very academic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it also wasn't about big topic like decolonizing political memory, which was my dissertation, right? Or memory of a genocide. It was just, hey, let's have fun. So I did. And, you know, speaking of that and speaking of genre, one of the things on you spoke about poem day 100 and it starts off it was the earth that betrayed us first and reading your collection there was something just really beautiful about your choice of language and particularly I think there are just those the last punches that just left me where I was like wow so I guess I wanted to ask you like what was an early experience where and I'm hoping that you could talk about your father <laughs> but um what was an early experience where you learned that language had power I actually didn't have to learn that it was already always true that language had power I was born in exile for to exiled parents I should say my dad was in exile when I was born because of his writing so already my existence into the my coming into the world was in the context of words having power. But I think my first actual understanding of it was when at some point it became clear to me that, you know, those Bible studies that we had to do in high school and that and that. John chapter one, verse one, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God. And I thought, wow, if there is no word, there is no God. And if there's no God, there's nothing. So God can only be understood through words. So words are everything. So whoever knows how to use the word is God. So that that insight, I've always carried it with me. And it's helped me to be aware of how people can manipulate words, which then define worlds, which define you and me, and where we can be and where we can be free. Words are really, really powerful. I respect that. I think that comes out a lot in your work because I think one thing that you made me think about a lot was also questioning a lot of words, as you say. So for me, one one thing that I'm thinking about that you could speak to was the idea of reconciliation. For me, it comes out a lot in the poem about what that really means, particularly for the people who really experienced the genocide, those who are in here to speak for themselves. I think there was, in, in day 49, you write that, there we were lining up like frauds, receiving medals and commendations like frauds. So could you speak to the intentionality behind these themes that I feel were really central to, to this idea of reconciliation? Yeah, reconciliation, another word is justice, another word is peace. And to think about June Jordan's, what shall we do, we who, who did not die? It is not enough just to have survived. And yet it is everything just to have survived because if you did survive, you're not here. So I don't know about intentionality, but I'll tell you that I was, think, I was thinking a lot about Primo Levis saying that, you know, true witnesses are not here. And I carried that throughout the writing of the thing. So what does it mean to claim to be a witness if you don't have the right words and if you don't have the right way of articulating what it is you, that was witnessed? 
and to reconciliation in particular, we can see how that word is complicated even here in Canada, the calls for reconciliation. And some people have asked to reconcile what? Reconciliation usually understands that at some point there was a conciliation, whereas for many people who are colonized, there was never any conciliation to begin with because there was never a relationship of respect. So to reconcile, therefore, is a false beginning. It really should be a conciliation. But I'm not speaking, I want to be clear, I'm not speaking about First Nations here. I'm just speaking about the idea of reconciliation. Also think about myself as a naturally person. After the war, there was all this business of now we reconcile. And there was all that troubling of what it means to reconcile. There was the idea of peace and justice when Dominic Ongwen has just gone through the court process in the ICC. He was uh, kidnapped when he was a boy, survived being in the LRA, in the Lord's Resistance Army, rose through the ranks. Because he survived well, he knew what to do. And knowing what to do meant that he had to take on whatever responsibilities as an LRA leader. He was caught and then he was made responsible. Of course, he has to be responsible for the actions that took place and his own actions uh, under his leadership. And there's some people who are saying that we want peace first. And to have peace, we should have justice in their actually way, which means bringing together all different communities, not holding individuals responsible. But then in the formal Western way, we hold people, individuals responsible. So then if justice is found in the international court, it doesn't mean justice is found in actually, right? For some people it does, but for some people it doesn't. So it is to say that words like justice, reconciliation, peace often has to do with who is speaking it and who and their own ideas of what it means. Because the dictionary, then and now and always, will never have the definition that covers all of us. Right? Mm -hmm. So we always have to make our own definitions for whatever suits us when we write or think, I think. I agree with that because I think in your work, there's that heavily of making sure as you say, to distinguish between what is spectacular and also what is really individualistic and what a community experienced. And I really, I really appreciate, I just really appreciate those different themes that you kind of bring into your work. Also the heavy theme of loss. And I don't know if that was also wondering whether you drew intersections between your own personal experience and that of your family in these poems, because some of them felt really personal. So I was wondering, is that something that you you brought in yourself and what that experience was like. Some of it was personal, and but some of it was personal with the deep awareness that what happened to us as individuals also happened to other people. So for instance, a really painful memory I have is that the last time my family was gathered together, all of us, was at my brother's funeral in 1984. And since then, we've never been gathered together in one room. That hurts. <laughs> That hurts. Memories like knowing somebody who has an incredible laugh, the kind of laughter that just when people are hearing the person laughing, they also laugh. And then that person's also that kind of room. Of course, I have that sense. And I also have the loss of knowing I will never hear that laughter again. But it's not just me because there's nothing spectacular about my experiencing of these things. These are human experiences we have across the world, I would say. I love that because in your work, as you say, you talk about, you know, touch the feeling of a loved one, the touch of the, a loved one, as you say, the laughter. And I think when you talk about that, you know, you think about when you think about loss and you think about this genocide and what it took away from people, it's not necessarily things or just place, but also just, as you're saying, small things like the touch of a loved one that meant so much, how someone used to touch them or a hug 
or something that they used to say. So one thing that I was also, if you'd like to talk about this in terms of memory, reading this, you realize how, even though it's been a while when you wrote that in 2014 and now we're in 2021, a lot has not changed. In fact, there's still so much violence and there's still so much that continues to be taken away from us. And I was wondering if you could speak about that, about how this work that you write continues to be even relevant today from the places that we come from. Like you talked about Dominique Ongwen and how that's happening now. Just because we remember something doesn't mean that we're never going to do it again. And my idea of writing about memory is also to write that we don't just miss what we didn't have, but as you're saying, we miss all the sensations, what we can't touch anymore, what we can't taste anymore, what we can't feel on our bodies anymore, and what we can't reach out to touch also, what we can't hear anymore. All those missing sensations prevalent and don't have to do with genocide, can also do with different displacements and different diasporas. Say, for me, I live in Vancouver now. Sometimes I think of how I miss hearing a cock crowing in the morning all the time. And when I'm in Uganda, I think, oh my God, can it not be quiet for one minute? Can the birds just stop it? Right. So, uh, so that movement between sensations that you miss or you don't have, for some people, it's permanent. Some of us go in and out of it. For some people, they'll never get it again. But to think about memory as something is not, memory is not a lesson. I was telling you about Primo Levi. Primo Levi was a survivor of the Second World War. And if we haven't learned the lessons of the Second World War, what makes you think that we have learned the lessons of the 1994 genocide in Bosnia, in Rwanda, in Sudan, and and, and Myanmar is happening in China? We haven't learned those lessons. It's one of the dumbest things about human beings that we can't learn from pain, especially pain that we inflict on other people. And I think you speak about that in day 53, you say there were echoes and if one listened for them, they were everywhere. And then you give a list of of these countries where all this was happening. And it's, as you're saying, like, even during that time, there were things that were happening that we couldn't have learned from. And we kind of just repeated that Mm -hmm. saying. And if that's that's uh, abecedarian, like ABC, right? It's an abecedarian. And I wrote it in one day, which meant it did not take any kind of research or thinking very, very hard. All those places, I, who's not a scholar of that kind of violence, I could name every, every place that I mentioned, a story about violence. And that means that there are also many others, many other abecedarians that can be written on violence. It's not something to be proud of, but something to talk about the enduring nature of this violence that humans impose on each other. Last year, one of the things about this pandemic that I've not heard much repeated this year is that for a while, the war stopped when when we're all scared we're going to die of COVID-19. People put down their guns to respect this virus. Then once they figured out that they could wear their masks and wash their hands, they picked up their guns again. Yeah, you see, this is why I'm saying like there, there are ways that you you craft your language or there are things that you say that just like leave you silent for a moment and you kind of just like think about that for a moment and what you've said is is really powerful. That's very true. Because if you think back to different countries kind of came to a standstill during the pandemic at, at different times of the month, but there was just that one month where it felt like the world was still. 
and everyone was kind of focused on just this one thing. And as you say, it didn't take that long for people to figure out that they could still do violent things and commit things once they knew how to be safe from this one thing that was endangering all of us. Mm-hmm. And also, and to add to that, they also figured out that they could go back to decimating the earth. Because for a mm-hmm. while there, water started to be clear again, the earth was becoming clean, animals started to come out feeling safe. But once humans figured they could wash their hands and put on their masks, they went back to destroying the earth again. And yes, I remember there being on the news showing like these deers coming out, these birds, uh, I think for the first time in a while, just enjoying the pathways because there's so much space. And it's kind of like that was for a very short lived moment. And it kind of goes back to now the cycles that we're living again. But I wanted to ask, because you've mentioned quite a few writers that have, I don't know if the right word is inspirations or that you kind of just drew something from. So I was wondering if you could just give maybe just a few more writers that have been inspirations for you, not just as a writer, but as scholars and a teacher. Okay, so I think rather than use the word inspiration, I'd I'd say teachers, the people who teach me how to think, how to write, how to consider my place in the world. And uh, if I were to begin with Canadian writers, I would say uh, Nobese Philip, uh, Dion Brand, Christina Sharp, Cecily Nicholson. Um, if we could cross the border to the United States, I'd say Toni Morrison. And it's from that circle of women that I've thought most in their writing about the power of words and what it means to be a Black woman in these histories, which are not about a, a past and a present, but it's about a compounding of moments. So in this moment, everything has, is, has always been and will be in this moment. Um, and so then what's to question the kinds of words we use. So Nobese Philip teaches us that English is a father tongue rather than a mother tongue. So it's a language for me as well that has never imagined me whole. So I have to treat it suspiciously and carefully even as I use it. Toni Morrison is the one who teaches me about the relationship between imagination and memory. So if you imagine something, I mean, if you work on your imagination and you write it down, for the time that somebody else is reading it, it is true and it is creating a memory. This is not necessarily what she says, but she says that there is a relationship between imagination and memory. So anyway, those those are my circle of scholars that I keep close to me. In fact, my computer right now is sitting on top of uh, the source of self-regard by Toni Morrison. (laughs) So it could be high enough, right? (laughs) It's a literal Um, foundation for this conversation. I'm so glad that I'm not the only one who does that because my computer is also seated on, it's actually seated on, weirdly enough, uh, a fast uh, woman by Jennifer Ntubugama. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, lucky you to have read that. I wanted, I, I only read Chin too, and I wanted to read the next one. I haven't yet, and now you have that one. Oh, man, lucky you. I, I, yeah, I actually haven't had a chance to read it. It's just been used as, unfortunately. Oh, as my God. Now, there's a woman who knows how to write. <laughs> oh, she's, she's a beautiful writer. Um, yeah. and she actually had um, a podcast interview that uh, where she actually mentioned you as one as one of like her writers that really? she yeah oh, that's, so cool. that's so cool yeah yeah she's, yeah she's part of my sister right what she did with Chintu was amazing because she did so what she did with Chintu is what 
uh, I, I think say it's an articulation of that Tony Morrison idea about the re relationship between imagination and memory. So Chintu was no longer just a story of the past, the beginning of Buganda and all of that. It was part of our presence too. So smart, holy cow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, yeah, reading. And I think with yours as well, it's just reading these works that take you back into these kind of histories that usually, as you say, often written, not written by us, but written by people outside. And I think there's something really beautiful by like when you see something that's written by us for us. Mm -hmm. I think that there's a way that this memory and as you say, the imagination kind of. Okay, let, let me tell you what you're trying to say. Okay. <laughs> okay. Wangui Wagoro, Kenyan translator, editor, writer, she taught me that when we read histories or when we read novels about people like us, we often read of ourselves written as they. So we could only come into the story as an outsider already. So just the use of the pronoun they, we read ourselves as outsiders. But when we write our stories, we are never they, we are us. So just thinking about that one pronoun. How do we fit inside a story? How do we sit inside a story? How we, are we considered? When do we speak? When you think about Conrad's Heart of Darkness and the Black woman, the single Black woman, she, what does she do? She groans or she moans? I think she Maybe both. Yeah? I think it's both, yeah. I think a woman in her own country where she was born and she has no words, what kind of arrogance is that? Then we who are Black women reading Heart of Darkness, we can only read ourselves through a groan. That's criminal. That's why we have to write our own story, so we can write ourselves as us. And because you become, I think even in your poetry, the victims become speaking subjects. They're very much present. They're not kind of written in that, like, as we're saying, like, sometimes when it's also written from the outside, it's written in a very grotesque, in a, just in an often very dangerous way, as you're saying, that just makes you read something and you're like, wait, what? And I think even while you were saying that, I was also thinking about Toni Morrison's Beloved. And I think that's why it's so powerful in the way that she writes about slavery, not from a place where she kind of separates, uh, where it's written, where it separates the people who have experienced it, but they're right there. They're the center of the book and it's being told from their voices. And I think that's what you kind of spoke about in the beginning. You're not trying to speak as a victim, but yeah. <laughs> well, it, so if, if I may make a late claim, so the work of people like Toni Morrison have always sat with me as I'm doing my work. So when I think about 100 Days, and this is something people have not picked up on, or if they have, maybe I just haven't known about it or they haven't told me, is that it's a book about the evidence of life and living and voice and agency, which is something that's often not attributed to us who have gone through violence. We're often relegated to numbers and grotesque pictures and defined as victims and that, that's it. And to call us or anybody a victim is to link them to the event that was so horrific that they can never be anything else. So then to trouble that whole idea of how words can be used for and against us, whoever we are, is to think carefully about how to use language then. Keeping in mind always in the beginning was the word and the word was God. <laughs> And so I guess towards my final question would be with your writing, and I think we've kind of touched on it, but if you could speak to what are the, some of the things that you listen to when you're writing or you listen for? This could be music, if it's total silence, 
or there's something particular that you're listening for. And I'm thinking particularly, um, and I think you spoke about this, but your process of writing a poem every day. And even now, uh, your experience during the pandemic of writing a poem every day or writing something every day. What are some of the things that you listen to or listened for? Uh, some people write to music. I used to listen to, this is what, 30 years ago. And I remember this so clearly because I knew every note of uh, Vivaldi's Four Seasons. I used to listen to that over and over and over again. It was also the phase when I first got introduced to Leonard Cohen. And I used to listen to that over and over and over. And I like to think that I know every song he has ever written, but maybe that's not true. However, in time, I don't listen to music when I write. But when I'm stuck and when I can't think anymore, and I'm not talking about writer's block, it's just when I'm stuck in my life or any time, I return to Nina Simone's Power, the cinema. If I listen to it three or four times really loudly, whatever is stuck in my head gets unstuck. But in terms of writing, the writing process itself, I like to think of it as having my antenna on and writing as a process of transcription. So writing what I hear rather than creating something. So it's a different kind of listening then, but I suppose it's also listening. As we wrap up, there's just okay. one final thing that I feel like I didn't get to ask you, which is about your teaching. And I guess your writing and your teaching intersect and in some of the things that you look out for, particularly for your students, also during this time of the pandemic, but also during a time where there's been lots of conversations, particularly around race and identity. I mean, that for some of us, I think has always been the experience and the conversations that we've had, but they've been louder now. So I guess I'm wondering, has that informed your teaching or has that just kind of been more personal? I think there's a relationship between teaching, writing and doing scholarly work. And for me, first I have to say that teaching is the job that I have enjoyed the most. It's, I, I really like teaching. More I guess as time goes, I, I remain, you know, in awe of how people learn. But what I have seen more and more and more and happened to me too, is that the most important lesson that I come to every term, every year, every time I do a process is what I learn about myself. And so teaching as a form of witnessing students coming to themselves, to seeing themselves. So sometimes it's about confidence in what they know. Sometimes it's about figuring out how to do something in a way that they had thought about, but they were not sure, and then they figured it out. And that's always really awesome. In my teaching practice, I, and I teach writing among other things, I encourage students to use uh, words in their languages, other languages that they speak, and encourage them to write without feeling the need to translate everything into English. And the difference that that makes, oh my goodness, and students feel that they don't have to write in English. It's amazing the kind of work they produce. And I think that's what I'm most proud of when I teach, when students become much more confident at the end of term about who they are. And now to my final question. <laughs> For real, for real, for real. For real, for real now. Okay. <laughs> um, what, is on, what is next for uh, Julie-Anne Okotvitek? And because we've talked a lot about writing, so I guess, yeah, I would keep it there in terms of writing. First, let me tell you that I'm speaking to you from the Baldwin House in Burnaby, BC, where I'm doing a writing residency. So I'll give you a little peek at the view in front of me. Wow. So I live in a glass house right now. It's a very, very beautiful house. Oh, nice. <laughs> oh my God, that is so nice. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah I just want to maybe some of the listeners will know but wow i'm so jealous yeah so i have the utmost privilege right now as part of my fellowship with sfu where i'm uh, doing a jack and doris fellowship uh, to be writing in this space 
I'm writing some new work. I'm finishing the term of uh, teaching at Emily Carr and um, curating work that I've written bits and pieces and just trying to organize them in, in pieces. So that's, there isn't a long-term anything. It's just enjoying being in a beautiful, writing and working in a beautiful space. And that closes our interview. Thank you so much. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank taking you. taking the time to speak with me. We hope you enjoyed this interview of Julian Otonia Okotpetek by Marjorie Uganda. I am Mahmoud Ababne, and you are listening to Tea House Talks. We recognize the generous support of the Canada Research Chairs Program and the Social Sciences and the Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are housed. Tea House is run by Larissa Lai, Paul Monnier, Shuyin Yu, Mark Herman Lynch, Ryan Stern, and me. Stay tuned for the next episode of Tia House Talks. For more on the work of Tia House, including symposia, panels, and readings, please check our website at www.tiahouse.ca. If you would like to be in touch, send us an email at tiahouseyyc at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.